Welcome to another episode of Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode will cover scenes from uh, Season 1, Episode 5, in which uh, Laura storylines are kind of at play. So anything involving Laura's murder or uh, the, the people or situation she dealt with before she died that play out in these scenes. That That's kind of how they're organized. Let's look at the different scenes in this episode and the stories that they cover. Uh, that's uh, organized, as always, by the subplot. For the Laura story in the murder, we see uh, Lucy uh, over the phone patch Gordon, or we hear her uh, patching Gordon Cole through so that he can talk to uh, Cooper and Harry and uh, basically give them the updates on what Albert's found, which we've already covered. Now, of course, Gordon Cole, the voice on the intercom, as many of you may know and some of you may not, is David Lynch. He is the voice of this character. Uh, David Lynch, of course, the director of Twin Peaks, had not acted uh, or, you know, creator and sometime director, had not done much acting. I talked last week, uh, or last uh, episode, rather, about the uh, film he made with the director of that episode called Zelly and Me, but uh, this seems sort of like a fun gesture. We do hear him in an earlier episode, I think his own episode too, he calls out, Good night, Ed! when the light's shutting off at the gas station. At least I'm pretty sure that's his voice. He's got a pretty distinctive voice. But now we're getting more of a vocal performance. Uh, but here he's kind of playing the straight man a little bit to the Cooper's adamant defense of Harry and everything like that. And later on, uh, when Cooper goes to the veterinarian's uh, uh, office, he finds out that they sell twine next door, and he knows right away it's going to be Finley's fine twine says it before Andy even shows it to him, and Andy's kind of astonished. And this is the twine, of course, that Albert said. So those are the two scenes that sort of deal with general aspects of the murder, but I want to focus on two kind of subplots within subplots that I think are get you know carry the bulk of the, of the um, murder mystery this episode. One is the bloody shirt. So we have a scene where Shelley and Bobby are, are making out at, at Shelley's house, and then they start trading secrets, and Shelly opens up the drawer, and she reveals to Bobby this bloody shirt that we haven't seen for three episodes. It's just been sitting there as something to, to deal with later. And he wants to do something with it. He won't even tell her what it is. You know, he says, oh, don't worry about it, babe, or something like that. It's like he, he's going to go out and, and set someone up, but he says this will take care of all our problems. So he's got his own ideas about it. And later, sure enough, when the cops go to Jacques' house, his apartment rather, to uh, you know raid it and find out what's there in terms of evidence, I guess they must have gotten that warrant pretty fast. Uh, Bobby is actually there, coincidentally. He is leaving behind this bloody shirt, hoping that when they eventually get there, probably not realizing they would come while he was there, that they're going to find that shirt, and it's got Leo's uh, initials stitched into the back, so they know it's Leo's. And they'll they'll know there's a connection between Jacques and Leo. So he's kind of helping them out in a way, I guess, even though he's planting evidence because it is leading them. It will lead them to a real connection. But, uh, you know, the, with all of this, we still don't know what blood is on that shirt. There's a definite implicit impression that's connected to Laura. Shelley says that explicitly, like this was two days after Laura died. I, I found this shirt, so it's definitely suspicious, but... It's still sort of circumstantial for the moment till they investigate that a little further. Now, even bigger as a subplot of the murder mystery in this episode is Waldo the bird. Uh, 
In fact, you could almost say along with the one-armed man, maybe more so because the one-armed man is kind of over and done with at a certain point, Waldo the bird is the thread uh, really carrying the murder mystery through this whole episode. Um, you know, I didn't mention in the uh, structure section what the focus of the episode is, but you can almost make a case the central plot is, you know, who is who is this bird and how the one-armed man leading them to that. So uh, when they go into the Timber Falls Motel and they you know, meet, which is an innocuous word for how violently they storm into his room, but they encounter the one-armed man uh, who turns out to be a shoe salesman named Philip Gerard. He tells Cooper and Harry and Andy and Hawk about a lot of things, but one of the main things is his best friend is named Bob Lidecker. And Bob Lidecker is a veterinarian. He's in the hospital. And uh, they decide, you know, well, this is, uh, the, Cooper decides really, this guy's got the same first name as the guy in my dream. Let's go check him out. So they go to the veterinarians and uh, they, you know, arrive. They find out it's right next to a convenience store. And uh, Cooper remembers in his dream that the, the, the Mike, the one-armed man's name in the dream, said, uh, we live above a convenience store. So right away he's seeing these dream connections. And he goes up, they go inside and uh, talk to the lady. She does not recognize the police sketch uh, of Bob, the long-haired man. That's not Bob Lidecker. So there's no connection there. And so that could be a bit baffling, but Cooper finds other connections. Andy walks, he told Andy to go buy some twine at the, at the store next door. We talked about that. But he also uh, believes that the bird that bit Laura must have been a client of this veterinary clinic. You know, there's really not that much to go by, but he's he's adamant about this. And sure enough, they take the files back to the sheriff's station, and uh, eventually, as they as they dig through, Lucy's digging through, and then she explains, you know, this this isn't going to work. Uh, the names in these files are alphabetical by the pet's name, so they're not even organized by animals. They got to go through dogs, cats, monkeys, who knows, to find this uh, this this name and then finally they do find uh waldo the bird i think andy has a moment of recognition because gordon cole calls back and says we've narrowed it down it's a minor bird or a parrot and andy gets a look in his eyes and he scrolls looks through probably what he's already looked through and he says here's a bird it's named waldo and then the biggest surprise of all waldo's owner is shock so that's a big deal and uh Cooper says, when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. This is actually a line from the alternate ending of the pilot where the dream sequence originally came from. In that uh, uh, sequence, Cooper gets a call from the one-armed man from the hospital, and then he gets another call from Sheriff Truman saying that Sarah uh, saw a man hiding behind Laura's bed. And so Cooper, oh, these two things must be connected. So they found a way to sneak that back into the series in this scene. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Uh, for, for for the veterinary location, I love that location. I love the business going on around them. Like I've talked about how Hunter just fills the frame with interesting stuff. So first of all, they've got this kind of cool Indian head logo on these old uh, gas pumps at the store, and it starts on that and it pulls back. And, you know, they have a funny exchange about Cooper's dream. And then as they're walking inside, this guy, like, looks up at uh, 
Hawk as he's walking by and he's like, hey, Hawk, and they high five for like no reason. And then there's a girl with a cat and Truman stops and talks to her. So it's a lot of cool stuff. And of course, inside we've got a girl with an iguana, a man with a bird and a woman with a cat. And that's probably it for the pets, right? There's nothing more distinctive. I'm kidding, of course. The big pet in there is the llama. And this is like really one of the most memorable moments in Twin Peaks where Harry is telling, uh, or Cooper is telling Harry their plans. And uh, suddenly, right in the middle of them, this girl, I don't know why she can't walk around him. She walks through them, carrying her llama on a leash. They pause. It looks in Cooper's face, doesn't break a sweat or a chuckle or anything, just stares right back at it, and then it moves along. And it's it's great. It's so funny. It's it's a it's a wonderful little image, capturing kind of the spirit and zest and mood of Twin Peaks season one. I think to me, it's it's like one of those iconic, comical, lovable moments that if anybody watched Twin Peaks back in the '90s and kind of, you know, abandoned it at a certain point, but they watched that first season and they talked about it at work the next morning, they remember that shot. You know, that and some Audrey stuff and a few other things here and there. The veterinary clinic definitely feels to me like it would be a scene in Hill Street Blues. Like they love these kind of quirky locations where the cops go in and about, except in that it would be like uh, Andy Renko, you know, what is going on in this place and having a fit. Whereas here, Cooper just stares at the llama, looks back at Harry and keeps talking. That's a uniquely Twin Peaks spin on this kind of uh, quirky, quirky uh, color, local color kind of, you know, location for a cop show. And you can notice, too, that uh, Michael Onkey, the actor who plays Harry, he looks down for a moment to maintain composure. The woman in the background, the reception is actually kind of laughing, although it seems kind of in character. It is a pretty funny scene. And Cooper has another memorable line in this part, sort of like his two separate events line. He says, in the heat of investigative pursuit, the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line, which could be Twin Peaks motto. Okay. Let's move along now to the Palmer family life, another subplot within the Laura story. Our first scene is with the Palmer family. We're back in their house, uh, first time since Leland has danced with the portrait, I think. And we see Maddie serving them there. Uh, there's a moment where like Harry's looking at her like, wait, you look kind of like Laura or something. And Leland is pretty mocking of Sarah. So she's telling them, as we heard in that opening clip, you know, that she reckoned that the long, this is the one, the long haired man who appeared in her dream. And, uh, Leland's having none of it. It's just like, he thinks this is a waste of time or indulgent on her part. It's actually kind of a funny scene with him because we've only seen him act like ridiculous for the past couple episodes i mean poignant yes but also kind of i mean you have to laugh a little when he jumps on top of a coffin in the, in the middle of a funeral and he's you know there's other scenes they're a little sadder the dancing scenes but he's seems like he's totally out of it and here he's like playing almost like the normie who's like oh what's that you had visions oh, okay sarah it's kind of a funny moment but i guess he's also in such deep despair that it just doesn't have time for it's almost like she's trying to make meaning out of this and he's just like not having it. So he strolls through this scene and goes, Oh, tell him about your other vision, Sarah. She had two visions and he smirks and walks away. And Harry's like, no, tell us your other vision. And that's when she tells them about what we saw in the pilot where she picks the necklace up out of the dirt. So actually today I was listening to coverage, the Twin Peaks unwrapped coverage of the funeral episode. And they talk about how, 
uh, originally when Cooper is telling Harry and Lucy about his dream, he says, see if uh, Sarah had a similar dream about the, the long haired man. Maybe, maybe she can help us out, <laughs> which is kind of, I guess because in his dream, she pops up from the couch and she's like, I saw a man, I saw a man in her room and all of that. So yeah, that makes sense then. So because of that, uh, which was originally going to be in the dream sequence, uh, he, he tells them to look. And so that's why they're here at her house. But we don't get that in, in that previous episode or in this one. They just show up there and it's like, did she call them? Did they call her? Why are they there? Um, but of course, it turns out to be pretty useful. Later on, we have a scene where Maddie is in the diner and James is uh, talking to her and she says, uh, well, Aunt Sarah can't cook right now. And Uncle Leland's up half the night listening to old music and crying and stuff. So not a happy household, but she seems bright and cheerful and is basically taking care of them at this point, which is good because those characters are just seem in such decline, um, like they can't take care of themselves at this point. They're just totally uh, immersed in the grief. For the relationship to Bobby, uh, we don't get too much this episode. It's sort of mentioned in offhand ways. Uh, Harry asks Jacoby about uh, James and Bobby, and Jacoby dismisses Bobby as a boy. Laura was a woman. And then later when Shelly and Bobby are making out, Shelly's going, oh, I felt so sorry for you. I was watching you at the funeral. My heart was aching. I wanted to hold you. It's kind of funny in a way because she's talking about the, you know, how he was grieving for the girl that they've both been sort of running around on. But she's obviously kind of in the heat of the moment. This isn't really so much about empathy as, uh, as uh, the passion that they're feeling. For the relationship to James, uh, Jacoby also dismisses James as a boy. Says Bobby and James, James and Bobby, they were boys, you know, and uh, thinks that they, they couldn't handle Laura, basically, he suggests. When Audrey and Donna talk in the bathroom in one scene at the high school, uh, Audrey brings up that she was seeing James, and Donna's like, more or less like, yeah, she was. Like, there's, not, there's no big secret there at this point, you know. And, uh, during that makeout session with Shelly and Bobby, he threatens James to Shelly. I'm going to fix him. He was seeing Laura behind my back. And again, she's just kind of like, fix me first. Like she's, she's really on to like, you know, enjoying their time together. She's not as fixated as Bobby is on getting revenge on James and uh, eventually Leo, although she's a little more on board with that. When James meets Maddie in the diner, he's on the phone with Donna. He gets off the phone, uh, pay phone at the diner. And he's like kind of, amazed by this person who looks so much like Laura. She got, uh, I think she's wearing glasses. Yeah, she's wearing glasses in the scene and she got the curly brown hair. So superficially different, but she got the same face. Of course, it's Cheryl Lee playing her. So it's the same person. And he's just kind of staring at her. And she's, oh, did you know Laura? And he says, yes. And so, you know, he's, he's still, he doesn't look like he's over Laura, basically. That's the sense we're getting from this scene. It kind of roots us back in his relationship to Laura after maybe, uh, well, I guess the funeral scene does too, of course. We also have Donna and James looking for the half-heart in the woods. An owl hoots overhead. They look up at first owl of the series, I think. Uh, kind of an iconic woodland image, so it fits right in. And uh, they're out there trying to find what they buried in the pilot. And there's a lot of symbolism to this, obviously, because... As they were burying that, it wasn't just about hiding some evidence from the cops and the fear that they would arrest James. Uh, it was also like kind of hiding Laura away, like the memory of Laura, because now they're in love with each other. They're they're going to try to look forward. 
and they they can't do it. Like they're back here digging it up, and it's like they realize as they're doing it, like this isn't just about the necklace. This is about Lara. Like like James says that he keeps seeing her, or he keeps thinking that he sees her out of the corner of his eyes. And of course, this is very relevant now that we've seen him meet Maddie for the first time. So he's still haunted by her. As far as Laura and Donna go, that subplot, same thing in the same scene where they're looking for the half heart. You know, Donna just she can't she can't move past her best friend either and let the cops do her do their job. She says the police didn't love Laura. Nobody loved her but us. And so together they resolve that they're they're going to solve Laura's murder. For the Laura and Renette subplot, uh, Audrey tells Donna that Laura worked at the perfume counter with Renette. And uh, she also has a funny line in this scene, which I guess I'll mention here because it doesn't tie in with any subplot. Uh, she walks up and she says, I've been doing some research. In real life, there is no algebra. Audrey later presses her dad for a job at Horn's department store, makes sure that she suggests, oh, I'd like to be the cosmetics department. And it's clear that she's sort of uh, going there because of this Laura Renette connection. For the therapy subplot, uh, Lucy informs Harry that Cooper is with Jacoby when they arrive at the beginning. They're coming from the Palmer house, and uh, Andy and, and Harry walk in, and uh, she gives them the whole rundown on invitation to love, and then you know, they ask wh where he is, and that's our sign that uh, you know he's talking to Jacoby, but when we get in there, Cooper's kind of peeved. He's sitting there watching Jacoby play around with these golf balls where he pops one, and he kind of hides one in his hand, and then he opens his mouth, and it pops out of his mouth, and Cooper's just not amused. And so he's asking Jacoby about Laura's secrets, about the sex life, about the drugs, and he's just avoiding it all. And he's like, you know, if you cared about Laura, why aren't you going to help her? And Jacoby's just very fixated on this professional duty, but we kind of get the sense that maybe he's holding his cards tighter um, for some other reason, not, you know, maybe because of his own personal investigation, maybe out of some something he hasn't said yet, but there's just a sense that like, uh, you know, because she's dead. I, I don't know. Does patient, doctor? I guess it does. I don't know. But as they're talking about uh, sex, he says, well, the problems of our whole society are of a sexual nature. And then he draws a comparison to Hawaii and when he sees the Tibet map that's still up on the blackboard and says, oh, you're into Tibet. Well, I'm into the east as well, but only to Hawaii, as he says. And he refers to the soothing rhizome of ginger, which the Hawaiian natives would... Uh, would chew on to, to sort of calm themselves and says that Laura, it's a good thing that Laura was seeking medication no matter how dubious. And of course, Cooper's not having it because cocaine is addictive and ginger isn't. As he's leaving at the end of this scene, after telling them that, uh, you know, as I quoted in the, the opening moments of this podcast, that, you know, Laura had secrets, she built a fortress around it. And during his time with her, he, could, he couldn't penetrate it basically. And uh, they ask him if he's going to be around. He says he's going to Hawaii. And he makes a little, you know, uh, hang loose and says, uh, it's a little little sign with his hand. And he says, hang loose, Howleys. This always makes me think of the movie uh, North Shore, which if you know, you know, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Great sort of B film from the 80s about uh, surfers, but getting off topic. Finally, uh, Audrey, when, when her and Donna are talking in the bathroom and she's sharing all this news, uh, she says that uh, Laura was seeing Jacoby. And that's the thing that most affects Donna. Not the fact that her friend might have been a prostitute at One-Eyed Jack. She's like, oh, that would, that would explain a lot. She already knows about the cocaine, apparently, although we never saw that. 
until now, I guess, but it's clear in this moment that, oh, no, she knew she was on coke. She didn't, whatever. And that she's seeing James. But the Jacoby, that makes her turn around and go, Laura was seeing Jacoby? And just have this kind of moment. Like, something about that, I think, because it's related to her friend's inner life, not just all these outer accoutrements, but, like, what was going on there? And that's what she wants to know about. For the addiction subplot, uh, Audrey and Donna talking in the bathroom. Audrey says, you know... She had a thing for nose candy, and Audrey says, yeah, that, <laughs> no big secret. And Donna and uh, or Donna says that, and Audrey says, I didn't know Laura half as well as you, but I knew the score. Laura was wild. For the drug dealing subplot, Bobby tells Shelly about the drug connection with Leo and Jacques, but he does it in a kind of funny way. He makes it sound like he has nothing to do with it. He's like, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been looking into this. I think Leo and Jacques might be selling drugs at the high school, maybe even to Laura. And, of course, Shelley has no idea Bobby's an intricate part of this operation. We don't get anything with the charity subplot this week, uh, this episode. And for sex work, we find uh, Audrey telling Donna about One-Eyed Jack. She says, isn't that that Western with Marlon Brando? And, of course, no. It's the bordello out in the Canadian woods where Audrey thinks Laura might have worked. But she still doesn't have confirmation. And she says, you know, when I think about it, I think about Laura being in a place like that, and I get all shivery. But it's like a hot cold, like when you hold an ice cube on your bare skin for a long time. And it's funny that Donna seems more bemused than a, than offended by the fact that Audrey is so cavalierly excited about her friend's death. Like, it's kind of an unusual scene. That's Like, I like this scene a lot. It's got great chemistry between the actresses and uh, wonderful dialogue. But it is funny to think you know these this show takes place one day at a time but of course it's shot over several weeks it aired over several weeks and usually on a tv show you give characters time to kind of move on or cool off between episodes so they're almost kind of working on that model and then you think about it and you're like really four days later she's just like huh, that audrey instead of still kind of traumatized that her friend was brutally murdered a few days earlier but you know it's a mixed bag because of course later in the episode she is she is realizing that she's sort of stuck with that, uh, the, the haunting of Laura, and she has to deal with it somehow. Later on in the episode, uh, when they get a fax from Albert, it reveals that that fragment that had a J on it, it's a poker chip with a, with a J for Jax, and Harry points out that's a, that's a one-eyed Jax poker chip. And uh, so at that point, we know somehow, somewhere... Laura was linked, as we've already talked about. But I find it interesting, too, here that um, it's a link to the casino. So One-Eyed Jacks is a casino as well as a bordello. And Harry introduces it in a previous episode as a casino. So you wonder, do they know what's going on up there? Is it sort of a secretive thing? And you know, what's, what's the extent of the public knowledge of what One-Eyed Jacks is all about. Audrey obviously knows, and she talks about it like it's a thing that's known around town, but that's not really how Harry introduces the location. For Laura and Leo, uh, Jacoby describes, or says that Laura was talking to him about somebody who drove a red Corvette, so he followed it the night she was killed. And uh, right after that, Harry confirms for Cooper, yes, uh, Leo is the one with a red Corvette. And later we see this red Corvette in the woods when Ben and, and Leo meet. Uh, and as already mentioned, of course, Bobby informs Shelley about the Leo-Lara drug connection, although there's no suggestion of anything else going on with them if he's a mystery man or whatever. Uh, for the subplots introduced in episode one having to do with Laura, we have Laura's spirituality. 
Um, none of it's, I guess, directly connected to Lara having these visions, except uh, near the end when Donna says that uh, Lara was spooky, just like her mom or something. But we do have a sense that somehow this is connected to kind of her... After, you know, what they talked about at the end of the previous episode, the sort of restless spirit wandering the earth or whatever that James kind of talks about in this episode. So it's a, it's a theme with them that somehow there's something reaching out and communicating with them. So we have Sarah uh, getting the sketch of Bob and then um, talking about their half heart vision. We have Andy showing the sketch to Cooper and he says, yeah, this is the man who appeared in my dreams. He says, the eyes were a little closer together. It's kind of a funny moment. And then they go to see the one-armed man. He connects with these dream clues. You know, we've already sort of talked about this in detail, so we don't need to go over it too much again. Uh, but the receptionist does not recognize Bob. Nobody seems to recognize Bob except for the people who've seen him in visions. So there is not yet any sort of real, uh, real-life analog, which is interesting because the mic in Cooper's dream Philip Gerard looks just like him, but, uh, you know, has a different name and all these different experiences. But this Bob character apparently is not Bob Lidecker. Like, it doesn't look the same. So they have, so Mike and Philip Gerard have two different names, but look the same. And Bob Lidecker and Bob in the Dream have the same name, but look different. So what any of that has to do with Laura is all pretty ambiguous at this point. But uh, when Donna and James are in the forest looking for the half heart, Donna says that Laura was spooky. She had dreams and visions just like her mom. So that's a sort of a sign right there. And we can actually move the one-armed man uh, subplot here. I, I was talking about it as a non-Laura story before, but now it's pretty closely connected to Laura. So let's talk about that in detail. So first, Hawk calls the sheriff's station and he says, uh, you know, I found the one-armed man. And, uh, and Cooper's all excited. He's, he asks Andy and Harry, how long does it take to get to the Timber Falls Motel? And they say at the exact same time, 10 minutes, 30 minutes. Well, it depends what route you take. It's kind of a funny moment, a funny delivery of that line. Uh, Cooper and Harry, when they get to, so they get to the Timber Falls Motel with Hawk and Andy and all of them. They're all outside. They're plotting their entrance. And they kick in this guy's door, guns drawn, put your hands in the air. And he, oh my God. And he puts his one hand up. This is such horrible harassment of this person. Like, yes, we know Cooper saw him in his dream, but this is like literally because he's disabled. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling. Like we go with it because it's the flow of the plot or whatever. But like they're picking on this guy who's a one-armed man, harassing him, yelling at him, like the things they say to him. Like Harry's like, you know this man. Settle down, Mr. Gerard. And Cooper's you know, lovable Cooper standing there sternly looking at him going, if you want to tell us, we if you won't tell us, we can find out, like threatening him, basically. It's just this like kind of unconscionable approach based on like a dream he had. But, you know, within the story, it does yield all these clues and kind of lead him in productive directions. Now, it's worth pointing out, of course, that this one-armed man is not per se the one-armed man from Cooper's dream. First of all, his name is not Mike. His name is Philip Gerard although his middle name is Michael, named after his uncle, according to him. Secondly, he does not recognize the sketch of uh, of Bob. Uh, he looks at the drawings. I don't know this man. He does look kind of like somebody, though, doesn't he? Uh, however, in this case as well, there's a little bit of a asterisk to that, which is that his best friend is named Bob, uh, Bob Lidecker. He's just about the best veterinarian in, in Twin... Or it says just about the best friend in the world, and he's a veterinarian in Twin Peaks. And he was recently in a fight in Lowtown, interesting location that we haven't seen yet. 
sort of implications of it being more the seedier side of town, maybe. And uh, now he's in the hospital, and I think it says in a coma. So, you know, that's why he was there at the hospital when Hawk saw him. So there is a Bob connection, but it's not the man in the drawing. And then finally, uh, obviously, he's one-armed. He did lose an arm. But unlike in the dream where Mike says he cut off his arm to sort of dissociate from evil, uh, in this case, he, you know, was selling pharmaceuticals someplace from, uh, or go, go on the road from Memphis to someplace, he says, and uh, he got in an accident, lost the arm. And uh, the arm does ha did have a tattoo, but it was mom, not uh, firewalk with me. So there you go. There's all of these weird little almost connections, but in the big ways, this is apparently a totally different character. So you can see Cooper getting a little frustrated with this, but yet it does yield the clues that maybe it was supposed to. So maybe it's, maybe that dream has served its purpose in that sense and uh, was not just a, a misleading uh, mind fart. So Cooper, Andy, and Harry, when they get to the vet, they uh, requisition the bird files because the veterinarian's uh, receptionist does not recognize Bob, but there is twine being sold next door, and he's just fixated on this idea that somehow this is this is connected. And uh, so that is basically the end of the trail, the direct trail that the one-armed man led them on. But obviously, with the discovery of Waldo, it's gonna keep unfolding. So this this following this dream clue. Uh, however inconvenient for poor uh, Gerard, did clearly yield some results. For the Mystery Man subplot, this is the second episode of Nothing. For the Log Lady Visions, this is now the third episode of Nothing. So uh, this plot, if we don't get much more further advancement, it's going to be consigned to the sort of uh, dormant plot lines <laughs> at, at, at next episode, because when it gets to four episodes without something, I'm just going to kind of gather all those plots together and list them off and move on. We don't really get anything for the Laura and Ben subplot this episode. There are little things, like I mentioned, you know, he has the photo on his desk, but it's got Audrey in it, too. Uh, she's got the one-eyed Jack's chip in her stomach, but, you know, that could be from anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be connected to Ben. So there's these sort of hints of reminders that there may be a connection, but nothing overt. So I would say nothing, really, for this episode. Uh, for new Laura stories in this episode... Uh, we didn't really have any introduced in the last couple. They just kind of built off of what we knew before. But I would say at this point, we are getting some new some new subplots for Laura. First of all, we have Maddie's connection to Laura. She showed up in the last episode, and it was almost just like a gag. Hey, look, this cousin who looks just like her. But here we're getting a more little more development on that. When James meets her, he finds out she's from Missoula, which, interestingly, is where David Lynch was born. So a nice little connection there. And as I said before, she talks about visiting Twin Peaks, pretending her and Laura were sisters. And she says, that, you know, I wish I knew her better. I hadn't seen her in years. So uh, a little bit of a reminiscence of the dream where the, the, you know, Laura or whoever looks just like her, more like her than Maddie does, says, I feel like I knew her. And as Maddie is talking to James and we're getting a sense of how she's linked to Laura and how he sees her as Laura and everything. There's this very heightened ethereal version of the Laura, P Laura Palmer theme playing in the in the background, which is kind of it adds a nice touch to it. Another new uh, <clears throat> story connected to Laura's mystery this week is Audrey at Horns. So Audrey tells Donna as she's leaving the bathroom after their big talk where they go over all of these different subplots. Like it's like a nexus of, of subplots, that scene. 
Audrey tells Donna, I know exactly where to start. Did you know that Renette and Laura worked in the same place? She's all excited. So we know now her plan. She's got an actual plan. I think this is interesting. This is what starts to make these things investigations and not just characters talking amongst themselves. You know, the police have a plan. They get out. They go to these different places. They follow one crew from one place to the other. And now she's going to start at her father's department store. So later on in the episode, we see her approach her father. He's on his exercise bike in his office. And, you know, Daddy, I'd, I'd like a job and kind of talking to him. And and basically getting him to allow her to go to Horns. And uh, he'll set up an interview and she can maybe work in the cosmetics there. So clearly she wants to go there and to see if she can sort of snoop around and figure out what was going on with Laura. Anything at work, anything with her and Renette. And uh, that's going to be her plan going forward. So now we've got a real subplot in motion. Who knows where uh, this one will end. It's it's uh, an exciting start. We also have a new story. Uh, call it, You could call it Laura and Jacques. Obviously, this ties in deeply to the Waldo, the bird part of the, the murder subplot. But I think it's starting to go off in its own directions. For one thing, not only did Jacques own Waldo, he also probably bought the twine that was tying her up. And the fact that he owns Waldo means there's a good chance he was there on her last night. So now we're getting a sense, just like we did with Leo, there's something going on with Laura and Jacques probably the night of her murder. When Cooper and uh, Harry and Hawk storm Jacques' apartment, they f- that's where they find the shirt. So there's another sort of loose connection, a bloody shirt also connected to Leo, who they have some suspicions of because of the red Corvette. So everything's just linking together wonderfully in this. I love how going into this scene, there's these night tennis players that are like all bundled up because it's the winter. Of course, they were shooting this in, uh, you know, L.A., so it probably wasn't too cold. But they're all bundled up with like masks and vests and gloves and stuff, and they shake, move across to shake hands. It's just a nice little quirky image, another one of those Twin Peaks icons. And then uh, there's also a cool shot of the apartment building from the parking lot as they like race up the stairs. I love the silhouettes that you kind of catch in the light from the alley. A little bit of reminiscent of the third man reminding us of uh, his influences, Tim Hunter's influences for this episode. That's it for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. See you tomorrow for the non-Laura storylines in the scene. So all of the subplots around the town that aren't centered on Laura will deal with all that material from this episode. Mm-hmm.